20-Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the Acast supporter feature linked in the episode notes, or by going to patreon.com slash 20minhistory. I'm David A. Bradbury, and this is 20-Minute History. On today's episode, in times of crisis, human beings have a curious tendency to lay their differences aside and act as a unified, fearless force. If you're in need of proof of this phenomenon, you need look no further than the tragic case of Catherine Ann Fiscus. This is Season 1, Episode 8. Let's jump right in. We take you live to the scene of the action, the home of David and Alice Fiscus in San Marino, California, a rural city just about 10 miles northeast of Los Angeles proper. It is Friday evening, April 8th, 1949. Sisters Barbara and Kathy Fiscus are playing in the yard with their cousins and family dog, Jeepers. They go about their business for a while without any eyebrow-raising incidents, but at some point, Alice glances out at the field only to confront a troubling picture. Her eldest and the cousins are accounted for, but little Kathy is nowhere to be found. To make matters worse, the other children have no idea when the three-year-old went missing and thus have no knowledge as to her whereabouts. The family immediately begins a frantic search to find her, and eventually, they get lucky when five-year-old Gus just so happens to hear faint crying coming from nearby. Alice is able to trace the noise back to the site of an old abandoned water well which has been out of use for decades and to everyone's absolute horror. It is the source of the crying Gus has heard. Kathy is trapped in the well's seemingly endless depths. Utterly shocked, Alice peers into the darkness and attempts to yell down at her daughter, asking questions in an attempt to ascertain how she has landed, and though Kathy can hear her, the information Alice receives isn't very helpful. An urgent call is sent out for a rescue team. As it begins to gather, the men determine that before they do anything else, they need to know how far Kathy has fallen. So they throw down a measuring device which reaches her 90 feet beneath the surface. With that knowledge, the rescuers set about devising plans, many of which are hatched, tried, and abandoned within hours. They try throwing a length of rope down the shaft, slipping it over Kathy, and raising her to the surface. No luck. Then they turn to an even stranger idea, finding someone small enough to fit through the narrow opening, lowering them down headfirst by rope and pulling Kathy back up by her hands. Though it may be unusual, they decide it's worth a shot. Within the hour, local horse tracks and circuses are receiving desperate requests that they send over the smallest, thinnest man they have, and astonishingly, a few of them actually show up at the well ready to accept that responsibility. But before they get the chance, David Fiscus stops that plan dead in its tracks. No one will risk their life in such a careless way while he has anything to say about it. So, 
rescuers turn to their only other option and get to shoveling. Their ultimate goal is to dig a hole alongside the well, reaching just a few feet below Kathy's depth. From there, they can construct a lateral tunnel and blow a hole in the well casing from whence the little Fiscus girl can be retrieved. This operation runs through the night, but thanks to lighting rigs which have been generously supplied by companies like 20th Century Fox, diggers do not have to work in complete darkness. Before long, Saturday morning arrives. Their task has hardly just begun, and already problems are beginning to materialize. The rescuer's primary focus until this point has been on digging a large, crude hole down to Kathy's level, with the hope that their lack of precision might allow them to reach her more quickly. However, the dirt walls are starting to crumble, and progress is slowing. Meanwhile, word about the Fiscus rescue has spread rapidly around the Los Angeles area, and it isn't long before thousands of spectators are gathered on site. Some pray over the rescuers. Others report on the effort to their readers. Others still sell snacks and refreshments. But invariably, all of them watch, captivated, as history is made before their very eyes. Saturday Afternoon Falling dirt finally forces the abandonment of the original digging operation, and focus turns to a much smaller hole which trained riggers have fortunately already started boring. Progress here will be slower, but it will also prove more effective since workers have been lining it with steel to hopefully prevent collapse. Saturday evening. Fresh faces are once again arriving on the scene, but this time they're newsmen working in a new form of media television. KTLA's own Stan Chambers and Bill Welsh get the call from their producer Klaus Landsberg to attempt a feat the likes of which have never been tried. A live, breaking news broadcast. The crew swiftly assembles their cameras, generators, microphones, and everything else they need. All other programming is cancelled, and Chambers goes live from the well. The stream would eventually last for almost 28 hours and does not break until the rescue is over. At the same time, the diggers prepare themselves for another restless night. Sunday morning. Men and women dropping by after church service join the existing crowd to check on the progress of the expedition. The pit has finally reached its requisite depth, and efforts are now being directed toward drilling the passageway over to the well. The possibility of a cave-in still looms large, and an old aqua pump is working round the clock to get rid of excess water which is pouring into the bottom of the hole, but finally. Sunday afternoon. After hours upon hours of tireless work, the lateral shaft is finished. The opening in the well casing is cut. The crowd holds its breath, anxiously awaiting word on the girl's condition. They don't have to wait for long for the announcement. Kathy has been found, but she is dead. The crowd is silent. Another hour passes before her body is finally brought to the surface again, concealed in a blanket. The news is delivered to the heartbroken parents, and as the crowds file out, Stan Chambers delivers his sign-off. That, as best I can tell it, is Kathy's story.
It's a tale which combines the depths of despair, illimitable human endurance, and genuinely Herculean rescue efforts into a truly heart-wrenching ending. And yet, in a sense which can only be described as unprecedented for one who died so young, there is as much, if not more, to say about what Kathy did during her life as there is to say about what she left behind. Truly, as those dejected souls left the field, as they made it back to their studios, returned to their homes, turned off their televisions, they realized that this little girl and the circumstances of her rescue could not help but leave a profound mark, both on the media they consumed and on their surrounding community. So I'd like to devote the rest of our time to better understanding that impact, starting with how it affected the state of television. During the late 1920s and early 30s, television was, to quote Stan Chambers himself, a flickering new novelty, not taken seriously by many people. In those days, TVs were considered little more than entertainment boxes, and they were primarily used, according to Professor William Deverell, for things like children's programming and sporting events. Now, that's fine in its own right, but when it came to gathering information on more serious matters, people seemed largely hesitant to turn away from more traditional forms of media. It's also worth mentioning that, from an economic perspective, the odds were heavily stacked against the television's rise to prominence. The first TV sets were prohibitively expensive, and the onset of the Great Depression only made them more inaccessible to the general public. In the late 30s, they began to make more significant strides toward relevancy, but again, their rise was impeded, this time by a declaration of war in 1941. In fact, the TV really only started to trend upward after the conflict had concluded in 1945. Within a year and a half, 7,000 individual television sets were purchased nationwide, a number which ballooned to an impressive 172,000 units in 1948. And then, of course, in 1949, the Kathy Fiscus accident took Los Angeles by storm and completely altered the course of television history. For all the thousands of people that witnessed the rescue live in San Marino, there were several thousand more glued to picture boxes for hours on end, watching as reporters delivered constant updates from the Wells site. Those in the area who owned televisions watched from the comfort of their living room, and those who did not formed crowds on street corners to catch glimpses of the broadcast in store windows. Looking back on it all, Mr. Chambers would say, quote, it seemed as if all of Los Angeles stopped to watch the drama unfold. This footage then ended up in newsreels not only across the country, but across the globe, thus making Kathy Fiscus's death a worldwide phenomenon which helped launch the television into a meteoric ascent. In the United States, a staggering five million sets were sold in 1950 alone, and you'd better believe that people were going to take news stations like KTLA a lot more seriously after their massive gamble paid off. It is not at all surprising, then, that the shockwaves of this monumental event in cultural history are still visible today. By proving that extended telecasts could be not only possible but popular, the Fiscus incident almost single-handedly made the breaking news broadcast an unshakable staple of American television news. Additionally, it has been claimed that the tragedy was a key influence on the development of not just TV news, but of entirely new genres as well. 
Professor Deverell, perhaps the foremost authority on Kathy Fiscus to date, believes it to be a precursor to reality TV programming, a claim which I'd very much like to ask him about since the bleak and, at times, unremarkable footage from the Fiscus rescue doesn't seem to gel very well with the heavily scripted, overly edited, melodramatic atmosphere of modern reality television. Though, to be fair, my knowledge of early reality TV is sadly limited. What seems to me a much more intuitive link is between the Fiscus tragedy and the recent blossoming of 24-hour news stations. After all, networks reporting non-stop on stories in progress, even when those developments are not altogether new or interesting, sounds to this humble host like something inspired by the success of the Fiscus broadcast. Of course, it's not a perfect comparison. Such news programs today are the subjects of constant criticism for trying to increase ratings by sowing divisions, and I don't think such an analysis would be anywhere close to accurate in the case of Kathy Fiscus. But whatever comparisons you may choose to draw, it seems practically undeniable that this entire phenomenon played a significant role in prolonging and legitimizing the institution of TV news. With that wrapped up, we turn now to the event's effects on the community at large. And it must be said that the expressions of love and support in the aftermath of the tragedy were nothing short of remarkable. For example, after everything had concluded, approximately $50,000 in donations poured into the Los Angeles area to provide support and proper compensation to those involved in Kathy's rescue. The Kathy Fiscus Hero Fund was thereafter established to manage that money, and donors had such a deeply vested interest in ensuring that funds were divided evenly amongst the workers that when committeeman Raymond Hill suggested using it to finance a women-only scholarship at Claremont College, the LA Times reportedly received more than 100 letters in fierce opposition. One especially passionate donor wrote that upon hearing the proposal, quote, my blood began to boil. In the end, Kathy's heroes got every single penny they were due. David and Alice also received plenty of letters expressing their condolences. Many took care to mention how much the story of their daughter had meant to them, and dozens more letters that ended up in the hands of the Times expressed those exact same sentiments. Quote, the rescue operations not only held the nation in the grip of anguished suspense, but laid bare to the world one of the most deep-down expressions of warmth and devotion that this country has ever manifested, wrote one Douglas Field. A Miss Grace Anderson added that the accident should spur the community into preventing, quote, all the unnecessary dangers to innocent childhood, that those children may not have died in vain. And Louise Dresser agreed, saying, quote, Her going has shown the entire world how closely our country is knitted together, how in a crisis we are completely one. Kathy Fiscus has not died in vain. Now, I'm going to need to be extremely careful here because it is definitively not my desire to undermine or question statements which clearly constitute authentic expressions of love and unity. However, if I may be permitted a somewhat cynical thought here, there's just a tinge of cognitive dissonance to these heartfelt pronouncements. Though there is something truly touching about a community uniting to save the life of one small, innocent girl, I can't completely ignore the thought that the compassion of the masses is often given unequally. I wouldn't be the first to suggest that Kathy's story received so much attention, at least partly by virtue of her race. 
Take as an example the fact that one source reportedly called her, quote, our little blonde angel. And I do think it's worth being receptive to this idea, because to put it mildly, the historical record is littered with equal or greater tragedies against minority groups that received far less public concern, some of which we've even detailed on this show before. So there is at least a possibility that selective sympathy is in play here. But in all honesty, I don't think that pessimistic caveat really matters. At least not much, not in the long run. Maybe it does from a psychoanalytical perspective, but from a humanistic standpoint, it is far more important to me that for a short while, Kathy's accident brought out the best in those affected by it. If this event and its aftermath are not representative of how people generally acted at this point in history, then perhaps they are representative of what an ideal version of humanity could look like if men and women more frequently chose to unite in spite of their underlying differences. And I take it as a significant glimmer of hope that this thought was not lost on some of those who watched the rescue play out. If we look back on those letters to the Los Angeles Times, we'll find this touching plea from one Charles David, and I quote, Parents, children of America, I entreat you, don't forget this weekend. Don't sink back into your everyday indifference. Let your thoughts go beyond the fate of little Kathy. Think of the thousands of children killed in the last war, of the French, the Chinese, the Russian children. Think of the Japanese children dying in indescribable agonies after Hiroshima, after Nagasaki. Think of the millions of children who are going to be entombed in the ruins of the next war your children, anybody's children. Make your pity for Kathy Fiscus, your sympathy for her parents, a source of thought, a decision for action. If the tragedy that unfolded ultimately made its witnesses more empathetic and caring, then who am I to point out that people's empathy and care isn't always perfectly distributed? Kathy Fiscus was, as her gravestone inscription reads, one little girl who united the world for a moment. It's not exactly true, but it's close enough. And that's all that matters. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of 20 Minute History. If you liked it, then please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating, as well as checking us out on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 20MINHistory. Research for this episode relied on the writings of both those who lived through the rescue, namely Stan Chambers and contributors to the Los Angeles Times, and those who have studied it, primarily among them Professor William Deverell. Per usual, I extend a heartfelt thanks to all of them. On next week's episode, we introduce you to the comeback kid of Polish politics, but until then, I've been David A. Bradbury, and please stay curious, keep reading, and never stop learning. 
lest you know what repeats itself. 